Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All The Things podcast, episode number 30, Git Workflow. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Hey, Matt. Uh, so this week has been a lot of work, <laughs> just basically contract work, and we have a big kind of team project with our contracts that uh, Matt's even helping out on, um, and I'm just going between actually developing and managing the work so i'm kind of like the, the the team lead for this one uh so i'm really learning a lot of um management skills i'm learning a lot of uh you know uh collaborative workflow skills and and really this episode is going to talk a, a lot about that like it's going to talk about at least a, one big portion of what we're implementing with this project and what we're kind of working on uh and i'll let matt do his update and he can get into the introduction for the episode so what's what's up with you matt yeah, so same kind of thing. Uh, obviously, I've been helping you out with a certain part of the, uh, certain parts of the project here and there. I'm kind of on commission, I guess, if you will. So whenever you guys need me to do like a certain part, you just kind of toss it to me. I do it and then just essentially hand it in uh, whenever you guys need it handed in. So that's basically my part. Uh, I'm not really involved in the management of that uh, because I'm working actually on another project, which I'm uh, the only worker on. Uh, for another one of our long-term clients. So it's been a lot, a lot, a lot of client work uh, the past, I guess, two weeks now. Probably, this is probably heading into the third week, I'd say, myself. Um, but it's been a pretty busy pretty busy time. But, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's good uh, good money, and uh, we're learning a whole bunch. So that's good. Um, so I think, I think we're going to jump right into the actual uh, structure of the episode, the segments and that type of thing, and then we'll let it uh, explain itself. So segment number one is going to be uh, starting without Git. So we've talked about this in the past where we didn't quite uh, get ready to have version control right at the beginning. Uh, so we're going to jump into that. Segment number two, transition to Git. That's self-explanatory. Uh, segment number three, workflow and benefits. Uh, and this is the first time we've had this segment on. We've mentioned this segment that will be kind of an occasional recurring segment. It's called useful resource or useful resources, if you will. Uh, and this one is about an API marketplace. And I will dive into that as we go. Uh, and then web news, of course, our uh, weekly recurring segment. And this one is about multi-device workflow. So I'm just going to dive right in because uh, the segments kind of go right in order of the uh, the almost said the elements, but I guess it's the activities as we went through our career as a web developer, and it kind of leads leads itself to uh, different workflows as you uh, grow your team and grow your workload. So segment number one is uh, starting without Git. So as we've said in the past, we've we used to use OneDrive uh, to keep each other on the same page. And basically what we used to do was we would have the same OneDrive directory uh, synced to our computers so that work would carry over. Mike would have his, I would have mine, it would just be on the desktop, and then there was a web interface as well if we ever needed to access anything from our phones, etc., etc. Uh, however, as many of you probably know, or maybe even cringing about right now, uh, this is not proper version control, uh, and therefore a bunch of conflicts, specifically file conflicts, would happen if we were working on the same projects. Uh, luckily, most of these were just minor and 
and just required someone to like resave their work or maybe copy a file over or just delete the file and replace it back in the folder, that type of thing. Uh, this solution did work for us, however, like it did work for quite a while. We were on there for well over a year, I'd say, uh, with only a couple of major sync issues. And, you know, you might say like, well, we had a couple of major sync issues. That service sucks. Well, that's not the case. We're not using OneDrive for what it's meant to be. And the fact that it was versatile enough to keep us afloat that whole time is, you know, kind of a testament to uh, how well it's kind of put together. And it did work almost every single time. Um, to this day, though, we still do use OneDrive. So because we had so much experience with it, because we already kind of had a file structure set up, et cetera, et cetera, we do still use OneDrive, but it's not used to house our projects and do version control. None of that anymore. It's used to house a couple of uh, common files, things like, you know, graphical assets for social media or just like a logo here, there, et cetera. Um, like I said, our projects are not housed there anymore. We don't do our version control through that any longer. Um, our experience with using OneDrive uh, rather than a proper version control did show us that it is possible to get started working as a team even without the quote-unquote industry standard tools which in this case is of course Git um, so that's one thing to keep in mind that like we did not know Git but we really wanted to get kicked off and start learning web development uh, we I really hardly knew any CSS when we first started uh, I knew some of it I knew how to read it for the most part but I didn't really know like, I didn't know how to put it together. I wasn't really super experienced, and I just I could just basically recognize it, if you will. So we really wanted to kick off on the CSS, on the, learning the CSS skills, and Mike was doing a little bit of JavaScript skills and that type of thing, and it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, we just need to, you know, get this done, essentially. And that's exactly what we did. Even though we didn't have that, even though we didn't have that standard Git skill, if you will, uh, we were able to get through it. So if you don't know Git, Maybe you should use something like OneDrive or maybe even Google Drive. We haven't tested that ourselves, but maybe even Google Drive to see just so you can have some sort of uh, common file place where you can have like all your laptop and your desktop and maybe your phone connected to it. So you can always grab your files wherever you are without having to know something like Git. Uh, I'm going to actually pass it right on to Mike because he's going to get into the more technical parts of our journey into version control. So take it away, Mike. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so like Matt said, we, we did use, a, a, I guess, a non-version control system because uh, with, with OneDrive, we can't really, we couldn't really do any sort of version controlling. We didn't really require it, to, to be honest, at that time. Like like Matt said, we're, we were just starting out. We were just, we're learning the core concepts of the actual programming uh, of web development, of stuff like that. And to, to pile on top of, uh, with that, like Git would have maybe been too much at that point. Um, looking back, maybe we would have went with Git right away, but I, I'm I'm of I'm of Matt's I'm on Matt's side where like if you just want to get quick and quick and going and uh, you're just you know just just starting out maybe you're in high school you know just starting out with just learning the core concepts of coding it's not the worst thing in the world just to use like a quick uh, you know syncing platform like OneDrive or Google Drive, but um, it's also I would also like to mention that working with Git and learning Git right from the get-go will help, probably help you in the future. Uh, so this is kind of our transition to Git, and I'm just going to go over some of the some Git basics for maybe some of the beginners that are listening out there. I'm just going to go over some of the terminology, what it means, um, and j just stuff like that, just to get you kind of familiar with Git. So if you if you know Git, uh, this will be just a review. Maybe you'll learn something new here and there. But then the next section where we're talking about the workflow, there I'll kind of go into depth about how we're handling a team environment at this point. Uh, so you can stay tuned for that. Um, so pretty much 
working on your own is still a good time to at least learn and practice your Git skills. Even though it might seem like it's slowing you down, uh, it really is preparing you for the eventuality of having to work in a team environment and having to use Git as a very core production utility in your uh, development. Uh, and it also come up in during interviews, like interviews usually ask a couple of Git questions to make sure that you're familiar with the Git structure. Um, and actually your job as obviously when you get the interview and you start working, uh, you'll, you'll need to continue, you'll need to continue to develop your Git skills. So, um, the basic, my basic principles are always the same kind of learn the base really well, and then everything else will be easy for you. So let's learn the basics first. Uh, so let, let's start start with cloning. So this is a term in Git. Uh, it's the initial act of taking the repository from your Git source. So from your site where you store your Git uh, projects. Uh, it could be GitHub, could be Bitbucket, could be GitLab. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, we use a lot of Bitbucket. Um, I have been transitioning a little bit, especially for my open source projects to GitHub, uh, just because it's the industry standard. But I, I would kind of balance for both. Um, but pretty much you take... The cloning is the taking an is the initial act of taking the repository from the online source, so from your Git repository somewhere on GitHub or or Bitbucket, and putting it onto your local computer. So it's a simple command. I'm not going to go into into depth with commands because you can easily look up some cheat sheets for Git, and uh, that'll be a lot more useful than me, you know, regurgitating a bunch of commands at you in an audio format. I don't think that's the way to learn it, but I want to go over the terminology for sure. Uh, so the next thing is pulling. So let's say um, you've done you, you're you're the one that's cloned it. Uh, you you wait a couple of days and your team has been working on the project. What you want to do is you want to update your repository, like your local repository, uh, and that's what pulling is for. So it's taking the changes from the remote, the Git source repository, and updating your local repository. The next thing is committing. So you've done some changes. You now want to you know put them into your Git structure. Uh, so committing is the first step of that. Uh, it's the action that ties your current change that you've made in your local repository to a commit object, which is a Git object uh, that you're able to then label and message with a reference to the changes that you've made. So you want to kind of give a, a a good verbal uh, commit message. So if you've changed the nav bar, you want to, you know, label it i've like literally changed the nav bar if you've you know added the logo to the nav bar label it as i've added the logo to the nav bar that's the commit message i i like to commit decently often sometimes i forget and then i'll have to write longer commits but i usually try to be fairly descriptive in my commit messages um when i'm inputting those changes into git because going back to a project history is a really important thing going back to see when you added what you added uh is an important part of the whole git structure um, so that's committing. Uh, then there's pushing. That's the next step in, in actually putting your changes on your Git repository. So it's taking all your local commits that you've just made and then transferring them, pushing them, uh, to the Git source repository on your GitHubs and Bitbuckets. Um, so this is again, you know, the process of taking the, the initial thing is committing, you're committing all your changes, then you take your changes and you push them. You take your committed changes and you push them to your repository. The next thing is uh, fetching, which is pretty much just updating your local Git file with the current status and updates of the Git repository. Um, it's, it's not actually changing anything in your local structure. It's just updating the Git file. 
Uh, then there's then there's things in in Git called branches. Uh, this is a, a system within Git that is essentially a copy of your repository. It allows you to develop code risk free uh, without touching what is referred to as a master copy or master. Uh, usually branches are used for feature development, uh, and the best practice is to create a branch for each feature once that feature is complete to close that branch. So you you want to create a uh, a navigation system in your application, uh, you create a branch called, you know, uh, I, I like to use my first initial, my, my first and last initial dash, uh, create dash uh, navigation, something like that would be a good uh, branch, to, branch to create. Um, and with that, again, that branch is very is separate from the master, the, the main branch, the main copy on the Git repository. So you can do whatever you want to it, even if you break it and push changes, nothing will happen to that master. Uh, so, but what, what you'll have to do next is something called a merge. Uh, and this is a system that's in place. Also a Git system that's in place is where you have to take that branch and you put it into another branch, whether that be master, it could be a different branch. And I'll talk about why you would want to merge two branches different, like for, uh, that aren't master together. Uh, there, there are uses, use cases in that. Um, and it, it essentially, um, and the trick is here to avoid working on the same portions of code uh, when you're doing merges. So if you have like multiple branches, try to make sure that those branches aren't working on the exact same pieces of code in each branch. Otherwise, when you do a merge, there will be conflicts and you'll have to manually handle those conflicts. Git does show you where the conflicts are, which is a huge help. Uh, and it's definitely 100% possible to handle the conflicts manually, but it also adds that extra step and extra fail fail points. So you want to make sure when you're managing your team to make sure that everyone's working kind of in separate files and uh, it, it'll just help your workflow as, as you go. Um, so yeah, these are pretty much the base core concepts uh, that make up most of the functionality you'll need to know, at least have a good base and be able to integrate easily into the company's workflow. Uh, and sometimes really learning specific workflow habits like we'll cover in segment three can pigeonhole you and almost because almost every company will have a different workflow. So just keep that in mind. Like I'll be talking about a workflow, but this isn't the, you know, the be all end all workflow. This is something that I have taken from different sources that I have manipulated into my own kind of, it's very specific to the application that we're doing. Um, and every company will have a very specific workflow, but essential, the essential parts, the base knowledge, like I, like we've been talking about just now, the cloning, pulling, committing, pushing, fetching, branches, merges, all that stays the same and is a, is a very good core base knowledge for you to know. Um, so with that, uh, I'm going to go on to the next segment, unless Matt, do you have any comments about, uh, about the, you know, initial transition to Git, the Git structure? No, I think that's that pretty much summarizes our journey anyway, for sure. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so the next section is workflow and benefits. So recently we've begun working in larger teams and that has pushed us to really develop our workflow and develop our Git structure skills. Um, and then this is just going to be an, like this section is going to be an example of what we developed and what we're using currently with our contractor, uh, with our company that we're doing, uh, what we're doing. So, and other companies, again, will use different approaches depending on the project complexity, the, the team size, the technologies available, et cetera. Like there's plenty, plenty different ways to do this Git workflow. This is the one that we've chosen. Hopefully it helps you kind of structure your own and you can manipulate it as you want. Um, so our branch structure is as follows. No one codes inside of the master copy, the master branch. 
Uh, it is the production branch. And only once the application is fully tested do we promote anything to master. The main development branch is called dev-integration. So dev integration. Here's where everyone's feature and design branches will merge into for testing. Every developer gets their own branch, usually just one at a time, although there are a few exceptions if, if multiple large features are being worked on by a single developer at once. We could They could take a couple of branches to do those features if they want to kind of multi-tax and context switch. Um, so that's essentially our or gets like the branch structure. It's fairly simple. Um, again, the main things are that we don't code in master and we have a dev integration branch and everyone has their own branch that they're actually coding in. Uh, so once a developer feels like they have a good section of their feature done and they want to test it in the, you know, the complete dev integration branch, what they do is they create a thing called a pull request. Um, and a pull request is a system within Git's infrastructure to signify that an attempt to mer there's an attempt being made to merge branches. Uh, it's usually easier to use a Git services UI, so like a Bitbucket UI, Git, GitHub, GitLab. They have their own UI for this specific pull request feature, and it's it's fairly graphically intensive and it's it's a good it's it's a good practice to use those. You can use it from the uh, the terminal. You can use it from the command line, but it's not necessary. Like uh, I, I haven't seen anyone use the get uh, the the pull request feature from the command line since I've started it. Uh, most of it's just done straight through the web portal. Um, so what it does is it allows the team to view all the changes. So when someone submits a pull request, so like let's say you finished your navbar feature branch, uh, and you want to merge it into the dev integration copy so that people can start testing it. Uh, you submit a pull request going through the online portal and that pull request will then be, view, be viewed and viewable by all the other developers that are on your team. Uh, and what this does is it gives transparency into what's going on currently, what what uh, things are being merged into dev integration, what who's been working on what. Uh, when you have a larger team, it's hugely helpful. Even when you have a small team, it's really good for the just for the transparency aspect of it and the, the you know being able to see the changes as well. So that's one big thing that the pull request does is it visually shows you all the changes that have been made during the the pre like the during the person's work on their branch uh so you can quickly kind of take a look at all the changes make sure that they're up to code they're up to code they're they're using the correct formatting and right in that pull request if let's say that they're not using the correct tabs or the correct spaces you can kind of give them a comment being like listen uh everything looks good but can you please change the tabs to spaces or the spaces to tabs whatever you have there uh, and then I'll approve the request. And what the person can do is then go on it from his local copy, change it to tabs or spaces, push, and he doesn't have to reopen another pull request. Um, that pull request will then get updated with whatever he's pushed. So I think it's a really good system, uh, especially when you're working with multiple people. It just gives a very good history of the project as well. Um, and it allows it allows multiple people to check your work, which is good too. Like what I'm trying to do now is like I'm, I'm the team lead on the project, but I still want all of the people uh, wor working to look at the pull requests when they come up and make sure that just from even a once over that there's nothing glaringly wrong with them because it gives transparency into, you know, all the code structure and it, it, it makes making mistakes harder, which is what we want with this. Um, so... 
what happens is, is once it's approved by the lead developer, he can initiate the merge. So what I do is I go in, I check everything, and then I click on merge, and it does the merge all on the server side. Um, and you know that there's no conflicts because you've already seen the changes that are being made. If there is a conflict, that's a whole other section. Uh, it'll tell you you can't do this pull request because there's a conflict. Pull it. Make sure that there's no conflict, and then and then you can do the merge. So pull requests also provide a good history on the project as well, just kind of like a commit message does. Um, but it's it's much more defined, and you know obviously you're committing very often. A pull request doesn't happen as often. It's easier to go and see what feature was added at one time. Uh, it's it's kind of it's it's really good for that kind of structure. You want you want to have that structure when you're going with a project because a year or two down the line, uh, you might need to see when a feature was added so you can go and check that older code or maybe you over it overwrote a feature but now you have to bring it back from you know from from your code base and you can't find it so you can again go into the pull requests history and check when a feature was overwritten when a feature was added and it all very essentially lies on the ability of your developers of the developer to comment and create a good pull request name because going back and looking at you know a bunch of gibberish is not going to help you so make sure when you do a pull request you say like implement first pass at implementing the nav bar feature like it may be very specific uh, about what you're actually implementing. You don't have to break it down completely into every single component that you've done, like every single commit, but give a good overall statement for your pull request. Um, so that that's kind of a the, the little summary on pull requests. It's a really cool system. Definitely urge you to read more about it. Try it out yourselves. There's nothing nothing wrong with you know opening up a repository uh, and trying to do a couple pull requests from you know what you do is you pick up we pick one branch, merge it into another branch, and you can merge you know from your feature branch into dev integration, from dev integration into feature. Um, but another thing that I that I want to point out is don't for for a, a structured company project. Uh, we don't require people to do a pull request if they want to merge dev integration into their own feature branch. Uh, and this is essentially because there's no um, there's no risk of conflict for us. So the dev integration branch, yes, that's in product that's in testing environments. So if it breaks, then we have to fix that as fast as possible. But your own local branches aren't in any testing environments other than your own. So it's on your own risk. So if you want to do a merge in from dev integration into your own branch, all you have to really do is do a git pull, uh, then origin and your branch names that that's again, that's a command, you can look it up. It's, uh, it's, it's fairly simple to do that merge. So, um, like I mentioned previously, once everything is merged into dev integration and thoroughly tested, a pull request can be opened into master then. And this will then be vetted by the senior developers and engineers on the project and merged. Uh, and after that, after which production, de production deployment and DevOps can begin. So that's kind of like the start to finish Git workflow. Uh, just, just for Obviously, it's not the whole thing. It's just a snippet of the whole process. Uh, there's plenty of nuance in Git. There's plenty of things that you'll 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 have to look into yourself. But it's really good to kind of get a good understanding of the base concept. It's good to kind of go through the process multiple times, even on your own, or maybe you're working with your partner. Make make sure that you kind of try to do it as much as you can, even though it might slow you down a little bit at the start. Uh, you know, try to power through that and learn as much as you can if you have the time. Obviously. Um, but that's it for the the Git section of this. I think um, I'll pass it off to Matt if he has any comments or uh, moving on to the next section. No, I think that's a, that's a really good comprehensive look at Git. Uh, and I do definitely agree that 
it was definitely an evolution in our workflow from OneDrive to Git. So if you're not using not using version control or specifically not using Git and you're just using something like OneDrive or just saving files wherever, uh, you should definitely look at version control because uh, if you eventually do work on a team, which you probably will at some point, or if you just want to track larger projects, it's definitely the the place to be, the skill to know right now. So, um, but I think I'm going to move on right right now to the next segment. So this is going to be a te- this is going to be a uh, almost a temporary, but it's going to be a an occasional recurring segment uh, called useful resource or useful resources. And in this case, it's an API market. Uh, so I'm just going to do a brief kind of backstory on APIs, and then I will dive right into the resource. So. A lot of the time, uh, app ideas require an external source of information or some sort of off-app computing in order to provide a useful service. So, for example, a video game collection app isn't going to contain all the video games that have that have come out and will come out. Otherwise, the app would just be enormous in size. You use all your phone storage. It'd just be a disaster. So instead, when you search for a game to add to your collection, the app will generally call upon an API, which will which will typically search a massive database of video games alongside other goodies that are like, that's like the cover art or like the release dates of the games, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes when people come up uh, with an idea for an app, they'll back down from making it because their idea requires a lot of specific information. So like those games, like I mentioned, or it needs some sort of machine learning. Like, so that's a very difficult skill to learn, et cetera, et cetera. Luckily, there are a ton of APIs out there that can usually help out with these types of needs. And they allow developers to finish finish up their apps without filling in massive databases or learning complex things like the machine learning, like I mentioned. So today's resource is an API marketplace called Rapid API. Now I found Rapid API, or actually more specifically, I found uh, an, a website called Mashape. So that's M-A-S-H-A-P-E. Um, when I stumbled upon a Hearthstone, which is a uh, which is a video game. Uh, a Hearthstone API and the Hearthstone API linked to it and it said, you know, check us out on Mashape or whatever. And I clicked on there. Now, Mashape was acquired by Rapid API a few years ago. So that's why I mentioned that, that that's what the correlation is between them. In case you're more familiar with the Mashape brand over the Rapid API one, if you go to a Mashape link, uh, as far as I can tell, it always directs to Rapid API, but they basically did the same thing. So basically Rapid API contains tons of APIs in a marketplace that range from, you know, movie databases to facial recognition uh, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Tons of different information. There's like health apps, there's trending ones, there's recommended, et cetera. It's just sort of like an app marketplace, but specifically for an API. And each API gets their own page that contain a bunch of useful information. So something some, something like the, the popularity of it or the average latency over the past 30 days, uh, something also like the average success rate of the API working over the past 30 days. And then there's also more technical things such as um, such as how to access the API in a variety of methods. So maybe you're using Node.js, maybe you're using PHP, etc. There's a list there that'll say like, hey, this API can be accessed with these, you know, five, six, what, oh, my microphone, five, six, etc. methods. Um, it also tells you whether the app is free or if it's freemium or if it's paid, because some of these things, obviously, they're hard to gather, like gathering all that information or whatever you're doing. So sometimes they are paid, sometimes it's limited paid. So like I said, freemium, you know, they'll let you have a certain amount of uh, accesses or use the API a certain amount until 
um, until you have to pay for it, etc. So it's just it's just it, it's a nice range, and this this marketplace allows you to kind of tell like, oh, this one's free. I'll give this a go to learn how to access APIs if you've never done that before. Or, oh, this oh I really need this information, and it's only this much, so I'll buy that, etc. So stuff like that. Um, you you can also actually just test out the API right on the page. So there's a there's an endpoint tester or whatever they call it on there, and you can literally just go through the different get methods, and you can just say like, oh, you know, get movie name, get game name. Uh, whatever you're trying to get you just quickly go in there and then bang you can just quickly check it right there on the page and the reason why I mentioned this is because one of the things that we'll often do when we're looking to have an uh, or make an app or have, have an app idea is that we'll be like kind of fishing for an idea we'll be like okay let's you know let, let's make an app this week or something and we you know what do we want to make what do we want to make and oftentimes you'll find yourself flipping through the apps on your phone or you'll find yourself flipping through the apps in the play store or in the app store, if you're on the, the Apple side of things and you, you know, you're really getting kind of the consumer experience, but looking through an app or sorry, an API marketplace like this. So like rapid API, you're actually going through something that's a little more technical, a little more closer to the developer side of things. And so therefore you're kind of, you're kind of like looking at these tools and being like, oh, cool, I could actually gather that information. So it's something that you didn't even think of or something that you just kind of blocked out of your mind because you're like, oh, I, I, I can't get all those model numbers or something like that. So there may be an API out there for you. So when I was looking through it, I kind of come up, came up with a couple of quick little app ideas just in my own head. They're not going to probably come to fruition, but if you're looking to learn how to access APIs or you're looking for a specific API or if you're just looking to do a project like I mentioned – check out rapid api it's free to check out there's accounts and stuff like that i don't have an account yet or um yet on there i've only used it a couple of times but be sure to check check them out check out all their different uh, all the different apis on there but also keep in mind that apis are literally everywhere so if you don't find it on rapid api make sure you yeah i think you can actually submit it to them but you can also go and just search the internet for an api of some type to see if it exists because apis are really great for that type of thing offloading work like I said, or accessing those large databases. So that's just, it's just a really quick little segment there. Just check out rapid API. The link will be in the show notes and I'm going to pass it on to Mike to kick off the beginning of the web news this week. So take it away, Mike. All right. Um, so with web news this week, we're talking about multi-device workflow. So it's kind of ties into our Git workflow discussion. Uh, because get, what Git allows you to do is work on multiple devices, allows multiple people to work on multiple on, on the same project. Uh, what multi-device workflow is referring to in this case is how do you handle life with a phone, a like a, a PC, a laptop, a MacBook, a tablet? Like how do you handle that life? Um, and there's there's a new thing that's come up like maybe even yesterday or something like that. Uh, I I just learned about it today really, um, and it's called it's it's the Microsoft Timeline Chrome extension. Um, so what what the Microsoft Timeline what Microsoft Timeline is if you're a Windows user it 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 is like a historical look at what you've been doing on your computer. Uh, so it allows you to kind of see from any computer that you're signed into with the same Microsoft account, allows you to kind of see what you've been working on and also continue working on all those things that you are working on immediately. 
Uh, so it, it, you, it's kind of like exactly where you left off. You go, you go and you click on uh, one of the timelines and it allows you to continue working. So what, what's new uh, today that I found out is there's a Chrome extension which allows Chrome to integrate with this. Before, Edge was the only browser that you could see all the tabs that you were working on, but now Chrome is, is integrated. And so I can essentially what this means is I can be working on a document on my on Google Docs and I can be looking at resources like uh, CSS tricks or Stack Overflow. Um, I could, you know, stuff like that on Chrome on my computer. And then I can kind of leave and go like go down for lunch or something like that. And I can pull out my phone. And if I have the Microsoft launcher installed, uh, I can go and look at the timeline and see what I've been working on on my computer and just go right from there and continue working on it, which is... I've already, like today I've installed it. I've already used it like three or four times. I was working on a, uh, I think a CSS range slider um, and I was working on it and then I had to go get some lunch uh, and I just remembered something and I was like, oh, I wonder if that worked. And I, I went to, to look at the resource I was looking at just as I left and it was right there on my phone already. So as, as of right now, it's worked great for me. Um, I do have a disclaimer in the fact that it's, it seems to be pretty random what it decides to put on your phone. Like it's not like it puts all the tabs that you have open currently on your computer, which is what I thought it would do. Uh, it seems like a very selective few of the tabs that it's decided for some reason to put on your device. Like I, I don't know how, I don't know if that's the intended functionality currently, or this is just like, you know, the, the process and they're working out bugs and stuff like that. Again, it's just come out like this Chrome extension has just come out. So uh, let me know if you have good ex like experience with uh, Windows timeline and you know if that's how it, exactly how it works. Like it's, is it selective or is it supposed to show every single tab that I have open at all times? Um, I kind of wish it was every single tab because it's up to me to choose. Uh, but so far it's kind of chosen the correct tab somehow, the ones that I needed. So I'm not complaining too, too much. We'll see how that how that goes over the next couple of weeks or so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll maybe I'll update you guys on Twitter. Um, so that, that, that's kind of like just a little, little tidbit for working, you know, on the go or working with multiple devices. Cause I have like, personally, I have uh, a piece, like one PC, uh, like full on desktop computer. I have a Ultrabook windows, Ultrabook. I have a, an older MacBook pro, I have obviously a cell phone. I actually have a couple of cell phones uh, for different use cases. I have, um, I, it's, it's a lot of different technology. And sometimes like I'll be just, you know, off to the coffee shop and I'll rip one of my devices from its charging port or whatever and take it with me to the coffee shop, not even thinking about uh, do I need to transfer anything. It's because and this is because I mostly everything that I do is on the cloud, either on OneDrive, like our work OneDrive or on the Google cloud. Uh, and then all our projects now are in GitHub or Bitbucket. So really there's nothing I need like physically. Like I don't, I, I think I only have one or two flash drives that I use for like installing windows here and there. Um, but that's it. Like I don't use flash drives anymore. I don't really use external storage other than for some, uh, some games at uh, friends houses. Um, really it's just like I'm living the cloud life. I think that's, that, that's how I am handling the multi-device workflow and it's working great. And this kind of like quick integration with the phone, uh, that I was talking about with the windows timeline is even better because before what I had to do, if I wanted to transfer a website from my phone, um, from my computer to my phone, 
Uh, what I would use is a thing called push bullet or an application called join, which allows you to kind of like push that site to your phone. It'll open it right up on your phone right away as you push it, uh, which was convenient, but that it's a deliberate action that I have to do. What if I, you know, get up, leave, like I had the situation today, get up, leave, go eat lunch, and then think of something while I'm eating lunch. I can't then go back and push it again. Um, I could go into my Chrome history, I believe, and that that takes like three or four steps. Now I can just quickly swipe over and my timeline's right there and open it up. So it definitely simplifies the, the multi-device workflow for me if it works out. So yeah, that's that's pretty much all I have to say on the multi-device workflow. Uh, what about, how do you handle it, Matt? Yeah, so I kind of made a couple of notes here. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that we were discussing before the podcast was that the uh, the extension that you just mentioned, the, the Chrome extension you just mentioned is an attestment to uh multi-device workflow kind of being you know dug into our culture now so for example like even using something like microsoft office on the computer i have the uh, the microsoft launcher installed on my phone and when i go and use some sort of app like whether it be OneDrive or uh, not OneDrive, one note whether you use whether it be one note or excel or word It'll show up on my leftmost panel and it'll say like, you know, recent documents or recent activities like it'll appear right there. Uh, Things such as like things that we don't even think of anymore, like chatting apps. So you could use like Messenger or WhatsApp across two devices like you could use it on your computer. You can also use it on your phone. Um, whether they have to be connected or not is different per app, but the same same thing still goes. You're still using that different device. So like this there's like a real clear movement. Well, and movement, and it already has moved quite a bit toward the multi-device workflow kind of thing. And this kind of begs a couple of questions uh, to be answered, in my opinion. So things like the PWA, it may may kind of seem like an off-topic thing, but a progressive web app. So, for example, could we, in the future, in a near future even, be working, let's say, in a PWA, so like I said, a progressive web app, and working on that on your computer. So let's say you're inserting numbers for accounting or something, whatever it is, and you have your phone automatically sync with whatever you're working on, right? Because you're just syncing it with your account on that website or on that PWA. And then you could, like you said, walk off to the coffee shop or whatever, click a button and bang, you're right in that your that app. You didn't have to go to the Play Store, download that app, sign in or whatever, which is kind of the general workflow of today, which absolutely works, right? Like you installed that, that uh, extension, generally you'll install like we we have the quickbook app installed on our phone we also use the quickbooks app and that's actually or not an app but i use the web app but you could have it installed on the actual computer so it's like it's it's one of those things where there's so many options but like does the pwa bridge that gap this is a like the pwa is more or less there's some you know limitations because it is new but more or less it's a cross-platform way to do things some things won't run offline on iphones but the actual web app will work just fine. Like no BS news for Reddit does work just fine on an iPhone for the most part. Um, it works with even more functionality on Android in its current sort of demo state. And and it's super interesting to see this revolution try to take off. And we were just talking about how PWAs don't really fit anywhere. And I kind of think this is where the idea even kind of came for them. Because it just kind of makes sense. Like I don't use Outlook on my computer. I don't use Outlook desktop. I don't even use Outlook on my phone. When I'm on my computer, I use the web app. And then I use like a, a I use BlackBerry Hub actually on my phone, which is like a totally different experience. But the whole point is is like if if that if that um Outlook, the Outlook web app 
if that was just a PWA that would just open because I have the Microsoft launcher, you know, it detects I'm logged in and in some way just syncs it over, you wouldn't even need an app. I wouldn't have even thought to download the hub. Now, the hub is a great app, whatever, but all I'm saying is that that you like right now, we don't have to think about moving the data much because, you know, you just, oh, you just download the app and sign in. But that's still a couple of deliberate actions. PWAs might bridge that so that it's so background it's such a background task to move your data around that you don't even really need to move it around it's just like oh i gotta like click this button and it'll just log me in because i you know i'm both my devices are on chrome and i'm signed in on both etc etc so just kind of a cool way to do it so what i what i kind of think uh is that this is kind of pointing us toward um, toward a more unified os future and whether that be more integrations between operating systems so like Word, like Microsoft Word on a Mac is like a really simple integration. For example, it's a Microsoft application that runs on a, on a competing platform on top of a, a Mac. Um, or you could actually see things consolidating. So let's say, and we discussed this in brief before, Chrome OS and Android, those two could become some sort of new thing where we have a new OS that's on the phone and on their laptops, et cetera, et cetera, something like that. Um, we all, I, we all also mentioned to to a big extent that Chrome extension that you just mentioned that is pulling stuff you know from Windows and throws it to our Android devices. So that's a big thing. And Microsoft Launcher is like a is like an Android. It's a launcher, so it's like basically like an Android conversion, if you will, just in terms of using your home screen and that type of thing. And that is made by Microsoft, who who is technically competing with Google. But they have like that integration right there. So this is really starting to pull things together. And I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on whether you can see PWAs falling into this. So I have some cool uh, updates here. Uh, so I was just looking at the timeline on my phone. And any, like, so I was looking at Reddit on my computer, like through Chrome. If I click on Reddit here, like the, the Reddit subreddit that I was subscribed to or the page that I was looking at, it'll actually open it directly up in my app because it knows that that's, that intent is intended for Reddit and the Reddit intents are handled by my Reddit application, which is Reddit Sync. That's, right? that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so not only that, uh, the other thing I was doing is we were writing the doc like the, for, the, for this episode. Um, and we were doing that in Google Docs online uh on, on through chrome so it shows me that we were working on that and when i go to it it also opens up in the google docs application that i have installed on my phone so it doesn't open up as a website it opens up like directly in the application so it is it's extremely seamless like and it's extremely fast um so i think that very much kind of proves your point almost that it's already happening right like it's already taking the web experience and opening it up into a native experience right away so like it, 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 and it, and it definitely just, it kind of like flows really well too. I like, like I said, I wish it, it showed all of my tabs that are currently open. That, that would be really cool. But, um, and I'm hoping that that's just a glitch that they'll fix or something like that. But really, I just, just looking at this right now, this is, this is already extremely useful to me. So it's, it, it's definitely, I definitely see it happening where like you won't, like the advantage of a PWA, let's say you don't have something installed and you're you're on their website on your computer. You're not really using their PWA fully, right? But you're using their website, uh, which is in the background technically a PWA. You send it over to your phone or like it's already on your phone through the Windows timeline. You click on it. It opens as a PWA on your phone 
and gives you the option to add it to your home screen without having to go into the uh, you know the Play Store. Uh, it's just extremely streamlined at that point. Like that's a that's an extremely streamlined experience. And then you have it on your phone if you want it. Um, like it's obviously an option. Like you can just continue using it. Say no to adding it to your home screen. But if you do, like if you say yes, that's all you have to do. You've added it. You've pressed yes. It's already on your home screen. If you can go back to it at a later date, it's now you know a PWA on your phone. So yeah, like I. I definitely like it. It's it's surprising to me that I didn't like there wasn't more fuss about this Chrome app, uh, Chrome extension. I thought that, that that definitely would have generated a lot of buzz. I saw a couple like you know posts on Reddit about it, but nothing too big. Um, and just like it, it's definitely a huge workflow advantage. Like I, I see it, I see it like you know making my life easier, which is not something I could say every day. Uh, yeah, like that's it's pretty awesome. The thing is with that type of stuff too, it's that like UX stuff doesn't generate really a buzz. And so like them releasing like a Chrome extension, it's like, oh, it's just an extension. You know, them releasing a new browser would generate a whole bunch of buzz in the new in like various news outlets and that type of thing and websites. But them making an extension, which is, you know, it's I, I don't have it yet, but it, it sounds like it's extremely useful. It, it, like they that that's not as exciting to people and so like i think the ux stuff is like really normally missed a lot and i feel like i mean slightly off topic but i do feel like maybe companies need to focus on you know they don't need to use the term ux or user experience but they 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 really should focus on marketing the fact that hey look how convenient this is like 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 oh we open this file it, like we opened this post on the computer like you were on there and then it opened it right in the reddit app it, like look how convenient that is and I feel like that gets lost on a lot of people. Like I didn't really see much marketing at all for the Microsoft launcher. I just downloaded it because I was like, well, I use windows all the time and I'm use all the Microsoft services. So like I might as well do it. And I do like the UX of it. Like I, I've never had a launcher on my phone before. Um, other than the ones that come with like the OEM one, like the one that come out of the box. I usually don't do a launcher, but I've left the, the Microsoft launcher on there for quite a while now. Um, because I like the widgets on the side and, and a whole bunch of the other features there. So, I, like, I really feel like there's almost a hole in a lot of companies' marketing, maybe. Or I don't even know where else you would how else you would fix the issue. But it needs to be something that really shows off. It really it needs to, like, show off what how useful it is. Like, like, generate a buzz around something that doesn't have a buzz. Like, don't just play on the fact that it's like, oh, we're going to release a new... You, you, know how, you know what I'm trying to say? It's like when somebody mm-hmm. has a new product that already is buzzworthy it's like people like oh what is it what is it you know and they get and then like the news outlets come and everyone like goes and clicks on the links and you know hooray for everyone but there's like that there's like that lull period where like things don't generate a buzz but companies should somehow like force them to have a buzz be like take a take a look at how fast this is now take a look at how like how like um how convenient this is take a look at how well, this runs now. Look how smooth this looks, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I feel like maybe, maybe social media is the place for little small videos, IGTV, little, you know, timeline videos, whatever. I'm ducking specifically Instagram, but they could show off stuff like that. And people would be like, oh, damn. Like, I remember, I remember that when Outlook, when Outlook came out, like the Outlook.com stuff, rather than like switching from, I think it was live or MSN or whatever the heck it was, um, switching from those days and it went to the new outlook like that was that was a half decent marketing thing 
where they were like, hey, look, like we're look at all these features. Look at how good this looks. You know, look at this, look at that. And it was a mail app. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll sign. I literally signed up for the notification for when it was ready. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's cool. Jeez. I'll check it out then. And I wasn't like, you know, obviously it wasn't as buzzworthy as like checking out trailers on it or something like a movie. But like, you know, it was, it was enough for me to be like, oh, I'll, I'd like to check that out once it's out. Okay, I'll sign up, you know, and I'll just take a look at it. So I, I feel like there's a missing piece there um, yeah. in UX. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. Uh, I think I think you're right. It would be a kind of a cool platform on Instagram or Twitter where they could uh, show little mini videos or maybe a couple, you know, sliding photos of how the UX works. Um, and that that probably would work really well. I'm wondering if it's because in their eyes they don't see it as being ready for prime time yet, and uh, like it's it's possible that they want to flush out everything with the enthusiast crowd because really like the enthusiasts know about it because of like stuff like Reddit and technology blogs and stuff like that. That's that's who is downloading the Microsoft launcher at this point, not the general consumer like you're saying. Uh, it, they they just don't even know about these kinds of things and they don't care. Like like most people are like you, Matt. They buy their phone they don't change their launcher like they don't care they just it works that's it like there's very few of us where they will go in and try all the different launchers out there and customize them to to our liking like i've i've gone through probably like i don't know 20 launchers 30 launchers i don't know like i I try different launchers all the time i'm currently like today was my first day on the microsoft launcher and i'm liking it so far i'm going to keep it for a bit um but i'm definitely going to try something else in the future uh, but like, there's very few, like I'm in the very small minority of people that do that. Most people will literally buy a phone and never change the launcher, nor even care that there is a launcher or the word launcher doesn't mean anything to them. So it would be really, it, it, it like, so it's, I think it would be a multi-step process almost, almost in your advertising campaign where like you want to show them that there is something that you can change, right? Like, so if you, if you just put launcher in front of their face, like, look at what this can do. Um, they might not even know that their phone is capable of that because they do, they don't care. You know what I mean? Like, but showing them that something is possible somehow, like, and, and I'm not a UX expert. I'm not an advertising expert. I'm sure that there's plenty of people at Microsoft that can do something a lot better than I can think of. But uh, I think your idea of the Twitter and Instagram ads would definitely work for them. I'm wondering, like, I'm they definitely have the capacity to do it. I'm wondering if they're not doing it deliberately because of some sort of a, you know, holding it back until it's fully flushed out with all the enthusiasts. That's a really good point is the enthusiasts do kind of, they're almost like the first like public, well, they are the first public testing group essentially. And if things are garbage, then, you know, sometimes they generate enough of a buzz to hit the main, the mainstream, but in general, things are still under wraps and it kind of, they kind of, like the complaints kind of appear on Reddit and maybe, maybe even through official feedback channels, right to the, right to the developer in some cases. And so, you know, they kind of keep it quiet, but at the same time, you know, it's still being developed and it's Microsoft. So like they're massive anyway. So there's like, obviously they're going to hit a thousand downloads without a problem. It's not like, you know, if we put an app out there, we're going to be fighting for the first thousand downloads to them. It's like, well, you know, we'll get our first 10 grand, like 10,000 downloads of an, uh, from our enthusiasts or whatever. And then we'll just, we'll just advertise this later because we can, but we'll know we'll yep. get like a decent amount of, you know, either whether it be re- revenue or usability or feedback or whatever they're looking for in this initial stage. So like a larger company that does kind of make sense. Although there are like some things that like something with like windows 10, where they show off the multiple desktops. Like I haven't seen a windows 10 ad in a while. Maybe they, maybe they have talked about this and I just haven't seen the ads for them. But like, I remember when multiple desktop was a, 
was coming out and people were freaking out about it. I've tried to use multiple desktop like three, four times and I, I can't get these. Like, I don't, I find it annoying. I'm like, oh, no, where, where did this window go? And I got to go like freaking searching for it. I, I've, I've used it a few times. I, I'll, I'll show you a use case. Like, I'll tell you a use case for it. And I know this isn't part, really part of the web news, but um, essentially you have a meeting coming up like a web a web meeting and you have a lot of like tabs and stuff open using a multiple desktop will alleviate like them seeing all those tabs um so you just kind of quickly go to the next desktop have the tabs that you need open for that meeting and that kind of you know separates your meeting from your actual work it, i i've used i've used it in that work use case multiple times that's really one of the only use cases that's worked for me well i've tried to do the whole work and play multiple desktops so like work only work stuff on one desktop only like you know entertainment on another desktop that hasn't worked well for me um, because sometimes i'm in the middle of looking something for entertainment and i need to do something for work so switching between desktops is kind of a hassle so um maybe that is a good way to use it but like i just can't get that to work but the meeting thing where you want to like isolate your meeting environment uh that has been a good like a pretty good help that's kind of a cool use case. Um, I would say that I tried to the the work play thing that you said, uh, but I tried to do it with chat apps. I tried to throw all the chat apps in one thing, and I ended up having mm-hmm. to switch so frequently that it annoyed me. But like being set in it kind of makes more sense. Like like work or play, or like you're in a meeting for an hour, so you're in you're on that desktop for an hour, and then you kind of like even delete that desktop. Once you're done your meeting yeah, for the that's day, what I do. yeah, and yeah. then you're right back to so that particular use case makes sense. I just don't see why people were freaking out about it so much because it's it, to me like I I don't even use the the like my taskbar at the bottom is is crowded because I use the old like Windows ninety eight like I have the full labels with the small text like and the long the long things like I don't use the tiles because I thought the UX of holding my mouse over something like if I had two windows of Chrome open I don't want to hold my mouse over the Chrome icon to have the thing pop up to then me have to search through this thing that popped up. I don't want to deal with that. Like, I, I just want to see, like literally look down and be like, Oh, it's the third one to the left. And like, click that. That's sort of my UX with that. And so maybe, maybe I'm just stuck in, in the windows 98 age, or possibly I just don't me personally, how my workflow works. I just, it's incompatible with it. I don't know <laughs> that that'd be a cool, that'd be a cool question. Actually, if any of you guys, uh, any of the listeners, uh use multiple desktops like let us know on instagram or whatever like what like what do you use the multiple desktops for like i i, I can't figure it out I, I it feels like a feature that i would add to an app because i figured out how to do it and then not really think about what people were going to use it for that's what it that's that's what it feels like to me mm-hmm. i don't know also add one yeah. comment about oh go ahead go ahead no, no, go ahead. Yeah. Um, one comment about your like the default comment. One of the reasons why I do a lot of things at the default level, um, and a lot of people didn't understand this. I remember when I used to uh, when I used to explain this to coworkers was I never switched anything around because when I used to be in IT, you can easily revert things to default, but you can't easily reset them up the way you want them. So if I get used to using them in the default configuration or close to default then I can easily go to someone's computer and if they need help, I can, at the worst case, just revert it, literally, like quite literally revert their their changes to def- to default and then I know exactly where it is and in most cases, it already is on default. So it, it saves a bunch of time uh, with that rather than, I remember people used to set up, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was like some crazy Windows 7 
possibly for Windows 10 too. I haven't looked at it in years. This crazy desktop mod and this guy had all these like macros and stuff. And yeah, he was productive, but you know, he would go to someone else's computer and then he would press like, you know, whatever crazy keystroke thing he had to pull up a media player. And obviously that person that he was trying to help because he was in IT as well, their, their computer like wouldn't pull up the media player because it wasn't that. So he's so, you know, ingrained in his own thing. But if I get ingrained in the default, I can easily help you out. That, I don't know, that, that, that might sound weird, but that was my, no. that was my thought process. Yeah, I understand. Like we're working in IT, I can understand where you're coming from. Like I've worked in IT before. I I really don't like IT work. Like I've this this past uh like yesterday or two two days ago I had to go and help my grandparents with their computer and it turned into kind of a nightmare and I had to go and build a new computer for them. Oh, well, there, um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and that th- that whole process was just kind of like there's certain aspects of it I like, like actually choosing the parts for the computer quickly and like building it. But everything else, like inst- doing the installation, explaining how it works, I don't like, like, I'm not an IT guy. I've realized like multiple times in my life and I've just realized I don't like IT. Um, and maybe that's why I don't, like, I like to tinker. Um, I don't like the whole set, like, use the defaults. But I understand where you're coming from because when I did work IT and people were doing their own things, that always was a huge pain in the ass um, having to revert back to that. Like, because the default was obviously the easiest thing to do. Yeah, for for sure. And I mean, I would say that I like IT more than you. Like I have a computer mm-hmm. in the in the other room that's my buddies that I'm trying to fix right now actually. Um so like I don't I don't I don't mind IT myself. Like I've never really minded it. Uh, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's right we say, it, but I I never really like got bothered by it too much. The only thing I would say is that there's I really I've always hated and I'm sure everyone hates them is like incidents when something happens and everyone's in like an immediate panic. And my thing always yep. is, is like, you know, if we hit a snag, because I, I realized this one time, and maybe this will help people with really strange, strangely technical, stressful situations, like rather specific. But one thing I realized was it was like, if I'm in the middle of troubleshooting your issue, now, admittedly, it's an incident, so I have to like jump on it right away or as fast as possible. So there's a little bit of urgency there, obviously. But if I get stuck in troubleshooting it and I have to troubleshoot for, I don't know, it depends on the severity of it, right? But let's say half a day. Normally, I'd be able to solve that problem in, let's say, half a day, but I got stuck and I had to troubleshoot for half a day, and I'm not going to get in trouble because I was sitting there working on it. I would really only generally, again, this is general, get in, ter- get in trouble for, you know, not, not jumping on it right away or something, right? You'd get yelled at by the customer, like, what's, what's going on here? You know, hurry up. But if I'm sitting there being like, hey, this is really screwed up. I got to work on this. Um, you know, obviously, you're going to have your rude customers, but like, if I get snagged, I get snagged. So why was there that initial panic? Like jump on it right away, but like, why is everyone? Why is everyone just j- suddenly in a panic? Like, oh Christ! Like we gotta run, and everyone goes like running toward the thing, you know. Um, n- not that like a lot of office workers didn't do that. Obviously, that's where I learned this more calm way to do it was instead of like, you know, get up and run to it. Kind of like uh, in school, you kind of get that like get all tense for a test or whatever, um, or a lab test or labs in our cases, which were really stressful in most cases, but. Mm-hmm in like corporate it's like that's kind of what they teach you is they they try to say like you know yes jump on it right away but just work on it don't be like we gotta get this up in three minutes so let's break everything in the in in you know in the you know let's break everything that's in the way to fix this one thing it's like no just fix it but just do it right away you know so that's just mm-hmm. a little key tip for anyone out there because if you don't answer for five minutes but you got it fixed in that five minutes or that 30 minutes while you were working on it meanwhile they're spamming you if you if your next response is it's fixed they're not, they're not going to bother you again. So just a little little tidbit that I learned from the corporate world. So, um, 
I think we're go- way off topic at this point, so maybe we should uh, <laughs> maybe we should yeah. end the old end the old uh, podcast here. Unless you have anything else to say off topic. <laughs> no, no. Let's let these people go home. I mean, I hope they are home, but let's let them go. Alrighty, everybody. Well, thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML all the things on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter via at HTML everything. We are on Medium. We are also on GitHub. Make sure to check out our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash HTML all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And we are signing off.